The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So just imagine the price of houses and land in your town spiked from, let's say, half a million to a million. What's supposed to happen next? Well, a bunch of developers and landowners on the edge of town would normally see this as an opportunity. Ah, they think, if I can build a house on a land package for less than a million dollars, I'm going to have lots and lots of demand. And if the cost for me is, let's say it's still half a million, I sell it for $750,000, wow, I've made a lot of money. That's how the market's supposed to work. When there's a big increase in a price, a whole bunch of new suppliers supposed to come onto the market to pull that price back down again. But that hasn't happened in New Zealand for the last 30 years. And a bunch of people are trying to work out why. In this week's When the Facts Change, we dive a bit deeper into the supply and the demand drivers in our housing market. We've seen an excellent new study of what's happened to house prices and section prices in the Waikato and in Hamilton. And we spoke to the Mayor of Hamilton, Paula Southgate, about what's happening from the council side of things. This week on When the Facts Change, we speak to Jeremy Couchman, who's an economist at Kiwi Bank, who's looked across the supply and the demand landscapes in New Zealand and measured how much extra demand is going in and how much extra supply is going in and how big the gap is and how that gap has changed and accumulated into a housing shortage over the last 30 years or so. It's a fascinating journey into what's happened to our supply in New Zealand, what's happened to the number of people living per house in New Zealand, how that's changing the types of homes that we're building, but also more importantly, why are we not building enough to deal with the extra demand we've got? To the point where now we have the most expensive housing in the world and it's risen by the fastest amount anywhere in the world in the last two or three years, in large part because we have a supply side of the equation that is stuck, stuck in the mud. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Econ 101 applied to our housing market. To give you an idea of how important this is and why you should care, in other parts of the world, when house prices jump from half a million to a million, there's a supply response. Like, for example, in Sioux City, Iowa, where right now you can buy a four-bedroomed brand new house with a three-car garage, 150 square metres, for 490000 US. That is about half the price of the equivalent home in New Zealand. Because in parts of the United States, their supply response is not stuck in the mud. That gives you an idea of what could be the future if we could fix the supply issue and where we are now on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey. Well, kia ora to Jeremy Couchman, an economist from Kiwi Bank. Great to have you on When the Facts Change and in the spin-off studio. 
Yeah, kia ora. Thank you, Bernard. Uh, it's great to be here. I think the second time, actually. Yeah, no, gr- good to have you on the show because you, like me, are a bit of a are a bit of a tragic when it comes to stats about housing and house prices and the economy. And you've done a fantastic note on housing demand and housing supply in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which, mm-hmm. from my point of view, is the only thing that really matters in our economy and society. We are all about not having enough houses, uh, affordability being quite uh, unaffordable, and, of course, this ongoing debate about the type of houses we've got and particularly how we deal with climate change. So I saw your note and thought this would be a fantastic way to dive into this topic. What is underneath the supply and demand for houses in uh, our country and why is it they move? So I saw your chart in particular, and I love your chart, which shows uh, since 1993 the demand and supply you've estimated uh, across the country and how the gaps have opened up. And obviously, there have been times when the supply has been more than demand. Not recently, I have to say, but uh, and and there has been in the, in the past. And I wanted to start off with, with a, a question about how you estimate demand, because um, you could argue that it depends on more than just how many people are in the country. Yeah, no, absolutely right. So um, just to be clear with the analysis we do, we actually look at um, the changes in both supply and demand. And we, based off that, we try and estimate um, our best estimate we can about um, in the current present time, do we have a surplus or do we have a uh, shortage of housing? And that's quite important in terms of what we're thinking about in terms of forecasting the housing market. Um, and you're absolutely right. The supply side, we, we get information on uh, the number of dwellings that um, Statistics New Zealand estimates. So that's a good source of information. But the demand side, that's the tricky one because it really is unobservable because when you look at demand, a lot of it comes down to preferences, um, people's ability to purchase, etc. Um, so, yeah, so that's the tricky one. Now, underlying all that, um, yep, population and population growth is the key driver, um, but it's not just simply using population because uh, obviously there's generally more than one person to a house, um, so we need to estimate some sort of or have some sort of um, assumption around that. And that number of people per houses has been changing in a structural sense, but yes. also in a short-term sense. Uh, my understanding is that over the decades, as uh, family structures have changed yep. and populations have aged, we tend to have fewer people per dwelling. Yes. But in some places, Auckland in particular, in recent years, there has been an increase yep. in the number of people per dwelling. So could you sort of unpick some of those trends? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very good point here because, um, yeah, as you pointed out, structures, uh, changes in structures and family um, and also ageing population. So it's demographic changes that are a key driver here. Um, and uh, from around, I think it was the early 2000s, right up to the mid-2010s before we had a big boom in, in net migration uh, towards New Zealand, we had a steady decline in actually the number of people per dwelling. And that's important because if what that suggests is that if you have an increase in population, you're going to need a larger supply, housing supply response to meet that demand. Um, and the main driver when I was looking at this data is if you look at, I looked at the overall median age of New Zealand, 
And that's a very slow moving number, but as we've aged, as more of the baby boom, boom generation moves through towards retirement, that's really um, lifting up the median age. And that inversely, um, very closely, inversely related to um, the number of people per dwelling. So that's an underlying driver that hasn't gone away. But when we get to the 2010s, we had a big, big surge. Uh, in the middle of the 2010s, we had a big surge in net migration. Um, we had fewer New Zealanders leaving long term because Australia wasn't necessarily as attractive then. We had a lot more um, migrant arrivals coming in as well trying to um, uh, get opportunities here in New Zealand through work, etc. And um, that's important because the migrant population in general, the long-term movements across borders tend to be of the younger generation because that's the sort of people when when um, cu- countries go out and look for working visas, they want younger people, people that are just sort of starting out or haven't got too much, um, or have got much more of their working life ahead of them. And so um, with such a big increase where we had um, for, for quite a number of years around 60,000 net inflows of um, migrants a year, that was enough to actually see the uh, median age um, of the population actually increase and that broke that trend that had been happening for quite a number of years. Yeah. Now that's completely reversed again because of COVID we had to close the border um, and that meant um, obviously net migration has fallen off and actually we've got a net outflow at the moment of around 11,500 people and now we're starting to see the return of a declining uh, number of people per dwelling and so what I've done is I've had to make a judgement around from this uh, number of people per dwelling uh, looking through the movement sort of in the medium term and say what's that longer term structural change and it, to me it feels like it's 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 going to uh, continue to be a downward declining thing. I think that's a um, sort of maybe a Western preference thing, an ageing population thing as well. Um, and so when we have net migrants come in, I think over time they'll start to assimilate more with, um, I guess, the New Zealand population at large, and then you start to see that um, continuation in the trend. So that's what I've sort of modelled in there to give me an idea of what that demand is going to be now and into the future. And as uh, the number of people per dwelling falls, the type of dwelling that they're interested in buying or renting also changes. Could you tell us how that's reflected in the types of homes that are being built and what we're seeing being built, not just in Auckland, but around uh, the country? Yeah, I mean, the um, since we've had the, the mid-2010s, uh, the increase in the population, um, there's been a, a constant increase in building consents. And we can break those down into both overall uh, or standalone, sorry, uh, building consents, but also multi-unit dwelling um, building consents. And there's been a steady increase in the share of overall um, building consents that are going towards the multi-dwelling units. So that includes townhouses, apartments, um, retirement villages, etc. And um, that's now, I think, around about 60% of all building consents, um, uh, obviously a lot in Auckland, but also um, in other large centres. So that shows that, um, first of all, um, because they're multi-unit, they're likely to be, uh, well, more chance than not probably going to be um, infill housing, and that tends to be close to the centre of the city. People obviously want to be close to amenities. Um, and also um, they prefer to have um, perhaps low maintenance, um, and obviously uh, well, these tend to be lower cost as well builds compared to having a large section with a standalone property in it. Um, that is quite an encouraging trend because it feels like it's an area that's underutilised um, in terms of... Uh, uh, try, trying to reduce housing um, unaffordability um, it would be to try and uh, densify housing um, as well as increasing, obviously, uh, 
some of the city sizes as well. And we have seen a response from councils and the government to try to increase intensification in our biggest cities with the medium density residential standards and also the urban development uh, changes, which in effect force councils to allow more denser housing types, particularly near main roads and main uh, public transport routes and nodes. Uh, do, can you see that starting to flow through into the size and type of supply that you're measuring here? Because in theory, if we're able to build so many shed loads of medium density apartments and townhouses, we could actually start to improve affordability and also deal with our climate change issues and that people will have to spend less petrol uh, commuting to work and school and, um, and play. Yeah, um, it's a little bit early to see that in the data because I think this um, move to uh, you know, force councils in our larger cities to um, um, sort of approve uh, intensification of housing. That really only came through, I believe it was August, so it's, um, you know, it's very recent, in fact. Um, but what we've seen, I think it was following the change in the Auckland Unitary Plan, which might have been around 2016, 17, I think, there did seem to be a bit of a shift towards that, which that also promoted um, more dense uh, housing in Auckland. So there's definitely been um, a shift. Um, I absolutely agree that uh, certainly this is part of the, the mix of the solution to um, uh, reducing... Uh, the housing shortage in New Zealand, and you do get bang for buck because, um, you know, you are building houses close to transport hubs. Um, you know, you're using uh, existing infrastructure without having to, um, you know, push out and, and, and spend a lot of money on infrastructure, putting them at the fringes of cities. You're actually utilising what's there. So um, that's less resource intense. Um, I mean, clearly you still need to invest in existing um, infrastructure because that may not be able to handle an, a, a significant increase. But, um, but that is, uh, I think, an important um, point. Um, another thing I'd just make about this intensification, um, you know, this is something that's obviously going to change and will take a lot of time to come through the figures anyway. I mean, at the moment we have a cooling housing market and probably for a lot of developers it's that, that rise in uncertainty means that they probably aren't going to go out um, necessarily right now and, and start to, um, you know, bulldoze houses in the middle of our cities to start chucking up these, these houses. I think this is going to be a much more of a long-term switch. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make about how as soon as house prices stop rising and maybe even fall a bit, as they have in the last year, a lot of the de developers pull back and a lot of the people who might be investing, particularly rental property investors who might have been buying apartments off the plan or uh, looking to fund some of the, the new builds of townhouses, they all pull back because the main reason to buy a house is to get the capital gains on the value of the house. But in the process of pulling back, as soon as house prices stop rising, you um, effectively freeze your supply response, which is in theory designed to get housing more affordable. I'm interested in you know how... There, there's a dance, if you like, between supply and demand, which means mm. that, strangely, unlike in other markets, house prices go up and then they don't necessarily come all the way back down again. They sort of freeze or they ratchet. Could you tell us a bit more about you know, how this process of supply reacting to prices uh, means that we don't actually solve the problem of actually pushing 
house prices back down again to make them affordable? Uh, I guess I'd say that here that um, one of the key drivers in being able to uh, develop and expand the housing supply is you need a ready supply of new land um, and not necessarily green fields on the skirts of uh, the outskirts of cities, but also um, you know the ability to build uh, more dense housing also in, in the middle of cities. So yeah, so when uh, you tend to have a fall in house prices, um, yeah, and you, you well if you have a large increase in, in um, uh, in-house prices, um, that does incentivise people to start to develop some of the land that they have. But uh, unfortunately, at the moment, um, we've seen large increases in interest rates. Um, that's pushing up the cost of, say, servicing loans. Um, and actually, it's making it harder or tightening credit conditions for people to be able to uh, invest in and actually uh, expand the housing supply. So that is certainly weighing on the housing market, and it's likely to also ha- um, weigh on the uh, supply of new housing as well over the next uh, year or two. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 2526. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Just um, talking about uh, that uh, issue of how councils and the government can free up land for new housing, both greenfields and brownfields, I wanted to go back to your chart because I think you can learn a lot from uh, charts and in particular your chart that goes back to 1993, which shows a big drop-off in demand for new houses through the late 1990s as the number of people coming into New Zealand dropped off. But the, the dark green line, which is supply, 
actually shows a continued increase in the amount of supply of new housing. I suppose you could call it uh, a lagged response to an increase in prices earlier in the 90s. But also Mm. at the same time, there was a relaxation of building standards, which allowed the building of an enormous number of apartments and townhouses, particularly in Auckland, and often clad in uh, um, uh, building materials that, uh, as we've learnt, were either incorrectly installed or uh, were problems in themselves and led to an entire generation of housing being affected by leaky building. Um, could you tell us how, how that has expressed itself in in the market, in particular how councils have reacted to the, the leaky building problems? Yeah, so I mean this was a huge problem and it probably still is for some parts of, of the country, um, but particularly through the sort of the, the 2000s when it started to emerge that the that big increase in apartments um, using certain products were actually starting to leak and they were very new at the time, so that was um, hugely concerning. Uh, and I guess for councils, um, you know, uh, some of this falls back on them because um, they were the ones that would have consented the buildings, they would have um, looked at the materials, etc. at the time, um, believed that that was an adequate, um, you know, use of materials to build houses with. Um, and so they've become quite risk adverse around this. And we saw following that um, very much a tightening in, um, in the terms of um, the amount of um, compliance that's now needed to build houses and the types of materials that can be used, um, the quality of those, um, which is a move in the right direction, but it does have other unintended consequences. And that is, uh, it does, it does uh, slow up in terms of um, the ability of, of the construction sector to supply houses, um, particularly when some of these products are are perhaps um, only supplied by a few producers. Um, so when you have a big ramp up in demand uh, for construction materials, so a big increase in supply that we've seen, then um, you do run into some issues that we've seen where um, uh, some building projects have just had to be pushed back, um, perhaps some delayed, etc. As, as there's just a jostle for these materials that just um, that just take time to to arrive. So that's just some of these unintended consequences. I guess the benefit of this, though, is you do get overall um, a better quality product, um, which is you know, what everyone is in everyone's best interest, but there's always questions, that, is, it, is it too restrictive in terms of, um, you know, restricting supply and our response to, um, to when demand goes up? Because that has been an issue for a very long time uh, in New Zealand, is that um, the responsiveness or the price elasticity of supply of housing is just too slow. So that's the price elasticity is a, a great um, line because it essentially explains how reactive, how quickly, how Mm -hmm. much the house building and development sector respond to a price change. Mm -hmm. And we got an excellent paper out from the Treasury Reserve Bank and housing and urban development economists who look at what's happening with our housing market, as they should. And they had a look at the Hamilton and Waikato uh, uh, area to see what had happened to not just housing costs, but house construction costs and also land costs. What stunned me in that paper was the increase in the price of bare sections in Hamilton of 650% over a period of 19 Mm. years, which seems to have been one of the main causes for the prices of house and land packages, if you like, or uh, uh, traditional standalone homes going up so much. 
How is it that land prices um, have exploded so much in the last 20 years or so? So the point that they would put forward, and it, it's, it sounds a reasonable one, is that you've had an environment actually since the 1980s, uh, pretty much amongst uh, much of the Western world, we've had a long-term decline in uh, interest rates. And that's flowed through generally to a um, a downward decline in mortgage rates. So um, yes, while house prices have been going up, um, the actual cost to service debt on that um, has actually declined or remained pretty steady relative to incomes. And so for people who can get access to that credit, um, they're able to borrow more with lower interest rates because... um, you know, their incomes can stretch a bit further, so they can borrow more, and that means that uh, if you have a restricted supply of housing uh, or land, then what is there, you can start bidding up the prices for the, the, uh, those assets, and that has had a big impact on um, the price of land because it just hasn't been able to adjust to these big rises in prices, and we haven't seen enough freeing up of land. So why do you think that is, that the, the land uh, hasn't been freed up? Because if I was a council and saw that the price of sections had gone up by 650%, part of me would want to say, well, that's not going to make it very attractive to come to my city. Or secondly, uh, there must be a bunch of developers and others who think, wow, there's an opportunity here. If I can find some cheap land, hmm. then in effect, and I'm able to sell it for cheaper than those really expensive sections near the centre of town then I can make uh, a lot of money here. And I'm trying to work out what's, what's the market failure here or what's the failure being that the natural instincts of the market haven't kicked in, that we've seen a, a big rush of supply into the market to squash down that price again. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because, yeah, I mean, if, uh, if you had a perfectly functioning market, then it should clear essentially any, um, any of this excess increase in the, co- in the price of land. Um, but there's probably a, a few things going on here, um, probably for uh, some politicians. When they see house prices going up, that's good for um, a lot of their constituents. Um, it's good for, I guess, for them. Um, other factors you might um, suggest is that, um, that there's a potential for land banking and, and for some developers um, because the, I guess the big increase in this asset is not necessarily the house on it, but the land underneath it. And so, um, you know, it may take time for them to start to want to release this land. Um, and then there are other considerations that, that come into play, uh, particularly around resource management. Some of the land on our uh, on the edge of, edges of our larger cities are actually very fertile and productive for other uses, such as um, agriculture. Um, we know in um, South Auckland and Pukekohe, it's, it's, it's uh, well-renowned for having very fertile soils for the production of uh, fresh produce. And so there is that political pressure um, from certain groups not to necessarily develop that land too quickly um, because of its um, other perceived values as well. Um, and then other resource management issues as well in terms of what, what's the impact from this on uh, the environment. And uh, also there'll be in some of our cities, um, living in Wellington, it's, it seems to be quite clear that there's ge- uh, geographical sort of restrictions on that as well. Um, but land is not just about, new land is not just about uh, releasing green fields on the fr- fringes of our city, but it's also been able to develop uh, more densely within in them as well. How important then is it um, for the funding of infrastructure needed to support these new homes, given that you can't just go out and wake up a house, you need to connect it to the sewerage pipes and make sure there's a road to it and footpaths and hopefully some sort of playground nearby. Uh, What's the restraints there on providing the underpinning infrastructure for all these new houses? 
Uh, I mean, at the moment, it's certainly the funding of it. Um, so the question of who pays for this, um, often it falls down to either councils or for central government. So again, that falls down onto rates, ratepayers and taxpayers. Um, so that's a key consideration, but um, it is vitally important because, uh, I mean, living in Wellington, um, you can see uh, for years now the water infrastructure there is just not functioning like it should. And it's a issue that's um, decades in the making through underinvestment in just existing infrastructure. You know, when Wellington was built uh, using clay pipes, etc., uh, that was, you know, that that was many years ago, probably a century ago, and now they're just not fit for purpose. So it's it's a lot of um, funding required to do that, but it's vital. Um, it's vital to be able to um, meet a growing population uh, in any city, and also as we've seen um, and, and we're seeing more of every year is that the impact from uh, climate change in terms of um, significant adverse weather impact uh, effects will. Uh, you know, can have a, um, a detrimental impact on our infrastructure. So we need to start really thinking about how do we future-proof that stuff. Um, yeah, f- future-proof our, our water systems, um, our transport systems, etc. Yeah, um, your note um, says that there's been obviously a reduction in demand for new houses in the last couple of years because the number of people coming into the country has fallen and, of course, there's a few New Zealanders leaving for an OE mm-hmm. or something more. And uh, what have you? What, what's your current estimate, therefore, of you know how big the shortage is, and uh, how how long before the mismatch between demand and supply whittles that shortage down? Yeah. So um, just basing our new estimate on the data at hand. So. Our population numbers, we're you know, making assumptions around people who are dwelling and then looking at the supply of, of dwellings from Stats New Zealand, we, we sort of estimate that um, over the last year that, that uh, yawning gap between um, supply and demand has actually reduced the housing shortage significantly from we had around 60,000 to around 25,000, something like that in that order. Um, so that's a huge um, decrease. And then um, based on those current trends, we tried to uh, project forward what's what's uh, the sort of our best uh, prediction. Um, and we, we it sort of suggests that over the next 12 months, maybe a little bit longer, um, we actually start to uh, see that that shortfall, uh, that shortage in housing actually disappear, and, and we start to go back to a period which we've seen in the past of actually a building up of surplus of housing in New Zealand. There are some uncertainty, uncertainties around this. The data on dwellings, the supply of dwellings we get is, is based on estimates from Statistics New Zealand, and they use, my understanding, is building consents data as an indicator, which is a good indicator, but it's not always going to guarantee that if you've got a consent, you'll end up um, having a house at the end of it, um, or even an, an addition to the to the, um, the a net increase into the housing stock. And that's because, first of all, in a in an environment now where the mar- housing market um, does decline or is declining, then you may um, see some developers actually pull out of, uh, even though if they've got a building consent, even though the cost um, to get one is high, they may still pull out. So you may not see that um, uh, increase in supply. My understanding that's not that common, but it does happen. And then if you're doing large infill housing projects, uh, which we are seeing a lot of, then if it's done within um, the centre of our, or near the centre of our cities, it usually means you have to dist- uh, remove or um, uh, take away some existing housing stock. So you're actually not getting as much gain from that. Um, and then also we've got a lot of delays um, we've seen in terms of anecdotes and what, what's been reported in the media of, of getting materials, which is pushing out some of the um, 
the time for these developments to actually occur. And so um, there's a good chance that stats will revise the estimates I've already released on the dwelling numbers. And so that may push out our estimate of when we start to see the shortage disappear by another year or so. But we just don't know. We're just going by the best data we have at hand. And so that suggests that, yeah, within the next year. So Econ 101 says, you know, when you have uh, an increase in supply and a reduction in demand and the price should fall. And uh, what does that mean for uh, your forecasts for house prices, which have already fallen uh, quite a bit since their peaks in October and November, uh, depending on where you are in the country. Mm. So overall, what do, what do you think this means? I mean, the biggest driver here is the tightening of credit in terms of the impact on, on house prices. So mortgage rates um, have, have risen significantly uh, over the last year, and we've got more and more people rolling off and, and actually having to refix, which is the tends, tends to be the, the flavour or the favourite thing for uh, New Zealanders to do, is to fix, on, uh, fix their mortgage rates. And so they're rolling off into higher rates, and that tightening... Uh, so it's harder to get access to credit. Credit's more expensive. So that's um, having a, a bigger impact than, say, uh, this changing in supply and demand at the moment. Um, we're expecting house prices to continue to fall and trough at around about a 30% annual decline by the end of this year. Though 30%? 13, sorry. 13. 13. 13, 13 yeah, 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 no, not, not that. Uh, we, we had a 30% increase last year, but not quite that much of a decline. Um, so th- that's all right. It was only a small heart attack, I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so um, a reasonable or well, a fairly large decline, but to put that in context, that would see house prices fall back to levels where they were in, at the start of two thousand and twenty-one, so start of last year. So um, in the context, it's it's uh, certainly a big turnaround, but not as big as um, you know when you see double-digit decline, what might suggest. And then from there, we expect a very modest recovery. So a, a good forward indicator of where prices are going tends to be the change or the growth in sales. Um, sales activity is down about 30% on a year ago when we look at um, uh, REINZ data. And it feels like that decline sort of troughed and it will start to recover. So we feel like we're at the bottom now. And then, um, But there's a lag here between sales and prices. So we think it'll be about next year when we start to see a recovery, um, but a very modest recovery. And this um, s- supply uh, surplus that we're expecting in the housing market is probably going to limit the amount of recovery in those house prices. So we're really only picking... Um, maybe by the end of the next year, um, you know, less than 5% increase in house prices on an annual basis. So very, very um, uh, slow recovery. So just looking at the the long-term um, drivers for these housing prices, which by various measures are the most expensive in the world relative to incomes and rents and have risen more than any other country, do you think that um, there's an element of luck, almost a a generational lottery here where a big drop in structural interest rates through the 2000s and from 2010 to 2021 has in effect created a lot of wealth for those people who happen to be lucky enough to be in at the start or get in with just enough time to take advantage of this big fall in interest rates. And we're also able to profit or see an increase in the value of their land because of uh, the ways that councils and the government um, restricted infrastructure investment and also um, didn't change the the tax rules. Uh, So that, you know, for for 20 years, anyone who accidentally on purpose happened to be owning a house had all this money land on their heads. is that is that a fair way to think of it? That um, those people who were in got lucky, and it 
it's unlikely that that could be repeated again, given that interest rates got to <laughs> under 2%, and you'd have to think they couldn't go much lower. Yeah, I, I think there's an element of that. Um, I don't know if it's about luck, but it certainly, um, this is a post, probably a post-Second World War story here, where you've had this baby boom generation come come through, um, and that's actually had uh, one of the key drivers of demographic change has been a key driver of lowering interest rates around the world, because it's not only New Zealand story, it's, it's similar in the US and in, in Europe and in and, and parts of Asia as well. And so that's been um, just a big driving force on lowering these interest rates. But but yep, if you've been able to get access to credit, um, if you've been able to get on the housing ladder, it's, it's certainly um, at, at times, not all the time, but at times it feels like the house price growth we've experienced has certainly been higher than what would be suggested by fundamentals, um, you know, such as population growth, um, etc. So, um, yeah, certainly whether it'll be repeated or not, um, you can never say never. But you know, the the interest rates we experienced um, a year or so ago were you know record lows. They were um, in a period that was very extraordinary. Obviously, we had the COVID pandemic and a very um, significant policy response to cut interest rates. Um, and it doesn't feel like any time soon that we would be back there at all. So, um, you know, what, what do you look to then after that? It's really about the fundamentals. And for New Zealand, I think the outlook is fairly good. I mean, it's a, a country in the world that I think people do want to live in. Um, we have um, a fairly relaxed, not not entirely relaxed, but a, um, a, you know, a, a fairly relaxed um, migration policy. So we do we do expect to have population growth um, through time, and that should help support housing a longer term. Jeremy Catchman from Kiwi Bank, thank you very much for coming on to When the Facts Change. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin Off Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Tiaihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.